welcome to another episode of On the Issues with Alain Ben-Mir. Today's guest is Stuart Gottlieb, Adjunct Professor of International Affairs and Public Policy at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. In this episode, Alain and Stuart discuss Russia's invasion of Ukraine, including the effectiveness of sanctions, international reliance on Russian oil and gas, and what Putin's broader interests in the region may be. Anyway, Stuart, I want to thank you for taking the time. Yeah. Uh, what 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 is what an occasion? So I know I know your field, and perhaps I think maybe we should focus on what's going on right now. If that's okay with you. Sure, absolutely. So let, let me begin by asking a question. And then we can. It's going to be a sort of an exchange of views, not not an interview per se, uh, rather than yeah, back and forth, back and forth. Uh, so so let me, however, I'll start with the question. Where do you where do you think this is going at this juncture? This is invasion that was uncalled for, unjustified, uh, certainly unnecessary, um, and it is a gross gross violation of international law and the UN Charter. But nevertheless, Putin, in defiance of the international community, in defiance of the West, he decided to do what he's done. And now we are faced with this uh, extremely, um, still in my view, dangerous uh, development. Where do we go? Where do you think it's going to go from here? Yeah, no, it's a good setup. Um, ironically, you know, we talk about the international community and international law, and we have to remember uh, Russia and China are both veto members on the UN Security Council, um, and Russia is currently sitting on the Security Council as presiding president. Uh, um, one of the complicating factors is that um, you know NATO is probably a little stronger, but Ukraine um, was never really on the path to becoming part of NATO. So, if I had to predict what the medium, you know, the short to medium term looks like, I would say Russia is probably going to be in control of a big chunk of Ukraine, and then Putin's going to hope that he could weather, you know, the sanctions and whatever you know penalties come his way, and then try to get like he did in 2014 after Crimea, just hope that the world just, you know, accepts the fact that Ukraine wasn't really part of the West, you know, in any formal alliance. I mean, um, and he's just going to hope that he could sort of create a new facts on the ground right up to the borders of some of the uh, some of the NATO countries and hope that he can then spend another eight years or 10 years, you know, selling oil and gas again and, and getting back to normal. That's that's what I think he has in mind. Yeah, I don't know what happened. You know, a week ago, I sort of brought the idea that given the fact that uh, the Ukraine is far off from being a member of NATO, I mean, they've been talking about it. I thought the way to solve the conflict before the invasion would be for Zelensky to say, look, we can remain a neutral country. We sort of will be a buffer between Russia and NATO. And uh, that was... They talked about it briefly, but the whole idea was dropped. My understanding today is that he's actually said, we're willing to become a neutral country. And to that, and Putin responded by saying, well, let's talk. Uh, do you think this is gonna go anywhere at this point? Would that slow down the, the, the advance, advances of the military, Russian military is, is, is making uh, in, the, in Ukraine? I think it's going to slow down the military advance. I think, unfortunately, um, this these assurances that Ukraine was going to remain neutral uh, are coming pretty late. And I don't think Putin would have necessarily um, believed it anyhow, knowing how much a part, big parts of Ukraine were leaning west and how many uh, parts of the West were trying to urge, you know, Ukraine to be more European than than more Russian. So I think the military side is just kind of, you know, that that that's out of the barn. Um, in terms of, I think the bare minimum, though, uh, Alan, uh, you know, the, the minimum that we're dealing with right now would be exactly what uh, Zelensky is saying, which is, you know, okay, we will remain neutral. We are, we will commit to not, you know, planning on joining NATO, which ironically was a was a sort of a de facto thing anyhow, considering uh, Ukraine was never really on the list to join NATO and hasn't really even met uh, EU or NATO requirements. Uh, for joining those institutions, but that's the minimum to stop the shooting. Um, I don't think it's the minimum to get Russian forces, you know, to sort of give up on Kiev and and uh, you know yeah. start withdrawing the military advance. 
That's my 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 feeling was was had he said that before the invasion, uh, might just might uh, pull the rug from underneath Putin and say, well, you want us to be neutral? We are neutral. But it probably, like you said, it's probably at this point it's a bit too late. But let us assume that uh, for a moment that uh, uh, obviously Putin is going to proceed and uh, topple the government uh, in, in the Ukraine. Uh, but we also hear from the Ukrainian that they're going to be resisting and they will move toward you know, insurgency that can drive the, 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 the Russian crazy over the next two or three or four years. Uh, I was just uh, reading a little incident, it was a tiny little island uh, where there were 13 or 14 uh, Ukraine soldiers, I don't know if you read it, and there was a ship coming, a Russian ship, and they, they, they told they, they leave the island, and then the answer was, uh, a Russian ship, F yourself. And the answer was, they bombard this little island, they kill all 14. Uh, Russian or uh, Ukrainian soldiers. Uh, you mentioned the the, the, the sanction, and I agree, agree with you in principle that he was able to weather the sanction uh, in, two, in 2014. But this one are going to be apparently, by all accounts, far more crippling, and that's going to impact affect not just you know Russia as a government, but certainly. The Russian people as such. Uh, do you think that's going to have, that is obviously it's going to take some time, maybe a week or two or a month, but, but that, do you, do you feel that maybe, just maybe the Russian people will, will, will somehow rise and say, we, are, we don't want this war, we don't want to receive our, our body, you know, our, our men in, in, uh, you know, coming back with, with body back. Where do you think, what, what do you think that's the Russian people are going or might actually rise and say enough is enough? Yeah, a quick point on the Snake Island. I think that's a really important symbolic uh, thing where the 12 or 13 Ukrainian soldiers said, you know, go F yourself. Um, yeah. You might look back in history. I mean, there are these moments in time, you know, like the, like the, um, uh, the Boston Massacre or uh, when the battle in the Battle of the Bulge during World War II when you know the Americans were surrounded in Bastogne and they the Germans demanded a surrender and General McAuliffe said nuts you know he sent the the, the note back nuts I mean if this if that's a little bit of resistance and like you said if if it becomes sort of a, almost an Afghan Mujahideen kind of you know counterinsurgency uh, or insurgency you know it might give the Russians some trouble and I think that that blends into your second question, which was, will the Russian people, you know, accept this over the short to medium term? And you mentioned sanctions, but it also might be body bags. You know, it might be how costly is this war going to be, uh, not just financially, but also in terms of, you know, the perception of, of the Russian, uh, you know, uh, state in world in world politics. That's why I think that, you know, if they do something crazy, you know, like, uh, like the Romanov execution, you know, if they start executing members of Zelensky's family and things like that, I think you would probably along get get some pushback even amongst the Russian people for that kind of butchery. You know, so it really depends on the way Russia decides to turn this into kind of a vassal state and maybe put a puppet government in there and you know some semblance of democracy and you know not a lot of bloodshed. In that in that instance, I think they could weather some significant sanctions, especially if China is on board with becoming more of an economic partner with the Russians and they can sort of offset some of the penalties uh, to, for, uh, on the West, you know, with some more opportunities to the East. Yeah, this is exactly what's happening. I mean, the Russia and China obviously are becoming much, much closer in the last uh, year or so than ever before. And uh, the sanction may, may well be uh, less biting because China will continue to trade with Russia and increase its trade with Russia. And that's going to, no question, ease the, the thrust uh, of, of the sanction that the West would be imposing on, uh, on Russia. Uh, but let, I want to touch on the issue of, of, uh, of this Russian supplies of gas to the West, West European country. And um, where do you think this is going to go? That is, uh, West, West European country, many of them depend at least to 30 to 40% of their energy consumption 
on importing gas from Russia. Where do you think that's going to go? Would they be able to, to uh, endure the lack of supplies for the next several months? Who knows? Look, I, my opinion, this predates this latest Russia thing. This idea that the Western European countries and under Biden, the Americans were going to start really, you know, uh, decarbonizing themselves and relying more heavily on parts of the world that are completely unreliable when push comes to shove. I mean, pressuring OPEC and the Saudis and the Russians and the Nigerians, you know, all to start producing more fossil fuels as the Western Europeans and under Biden, you know, the Americans start to uh, keep, all, call, keep all our fossil fuels in the ground for, you know, for some kind of transition they're expecting uh, to a green future, which will come eventually. But we can't sort of give up our strategic positions in the world and the geostrategic advantages of, of energy in geopolitics. So I think the Americans have an opportunity to fill in the gap, obviously, because we U.S. still has a lot of, uh, I mean, the world's leading reserves of natural gas under the ground. If the U.S. decides it's going to exploit the fracking, uh, it's really an innovation that that shocked uh, Russia. It shocked the, the Saudis. Um, so I think the Americans, if we sort of step up the innovations and the technology on LNG, you know, liquid, liquefied natu natural gas as a way to replace the pipeline uh, and the LNG coming from the Russians into Europe, I think that could be a break even um, in the next six months to a year. Uh, you know, the Nord Stream 2 obviously was the big, um, uh, you know, that was the big prize uh, for Russia after uh, in the last 10 years. And the Germans were promising to get off of coal and nuclear and rely on, on Russian natural gas as a bridge fuel to, to, to a green future, but we're not anywhere near a green future. Right. Right. The green future will not be windmills and solar panels. The green future is gonna to have to have more innovations and more technological breakthroughs like uh, fusion, uh, like you know, mini fusion uh, reactors and things like that, that MIT is trying to invent. So we're not, we can't give up the geopolitical space to Russia or to the Saudis or to the Iranians. You know, they're gonna pump natural gas if they get back into an Iran nuclear deal. You know, this idea of giving away geopolitics of energy to, to those kinds of actors was very short-sighted. And this long predates the latest moves on Ukraine. That's right, but, but what do we do in the interim? I mean, this is, this is a longer term of plan. What do we do the next three, four, five, six months? Uh, let's say that, that the, as of today or tomorrow, the gas will stop flowing into West Europe from Russia. What then? The United States doesn't have the capacity to immediately uh, you know, provide the supplies that West European need or supplies coming from the Middle East. That's going to take some time. What do the European countries do in the interim? Listen, honestly, Elon, this, this is something that was not well thought out in advance of a tough line against Putin right now because we're exposed. And the best, the best um, evidence of this is you, you, there was a deputy uh, 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 State Department person uh, down the White House yesterday who was emphatic that none of the sanctions we're going to be putting down should in any way concern the oil markets. You know, it's not going to impact, uh, you know, the Russian oil markets. I mean, the fact that we're going to go, you know, hardcore on sanctions and punishment for these violations of, of you know, international law, um, but we're going to make sure we don't cut off the oil and gas supply from Russia. That's just how short-sighted this whole thing has been. I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, What's the what's the point? As long as Russia continues to get the money they need from selling the gas, you know. I, I, yeah, when I mean on day one, on day two, when Biden canceled the Keystone pipeline in North America, and then then put his imprimatur and his thumbs up green light for the Nord Stream two to uh, to Merkel uh, and Germany, which is what you know the Trump administration opposed that the idea the United States was going to you know have some you know self harm of its own you know oil and uh, O and G production and start agreeing with the Europeans to get more dependent on Putin. I have no idea how anyone thought that was a good idea. Now, but uh, uh, but but that Biden has been trying to do you know sort of he moved with the sanction initially before the invasion imposed certain sanction. As the Russian began, now they're considering additional sanctions. Yesterday, I was listening uh, quite extensively on the debate in the British Parliament about various things that Britain is going to do in conjunction, with, of course, with our allies uh, throughout Europe. Uh, but then again, the, the, the real sanction that can actually the mother of all sanctions 
that can in fact cripple Russia, which is SWIFT. But now I know they're talking about it saying, well, SWIFT will also have adverse impact on our transaction, our international monetary system. Uh, but then again, if we want to cripple the Russian economy, this is the kind of step I believe should be taken. What's your take on that? Exactly. Yeah, the SWIFT is the way to really cripple them in, in the global financial world, you know, the whole universe of, of you know, global finance. Um, two, big, two big problems, and this is why it's probably not going to happen. And you mentioned one of them. The first one is um, there are European countries, uh, including uh, Germany, uh, including uh, the Netherlands and, and uh, uh, Switzerland. Um, they have a lot of business transactions with the Russians, um, and they're SWIFT dependent in terms of yeah. debt and debt, debt repayments. So, you know, if, if you just sort of shut them out of SWIFT, then Russia might just default on these debts that they owe that would be paid through a SWIFT program. Um, and there's these European countries don't really want to see that happen to themselves, you know, then they would be taking, yeah, and it's, it's, it's uneven across the European Union who has these debts and who has these financial relationships with Russia. You know, if they're going to do this, then they're going to have to pool the, the harm within the European Union and spread the, the cost of the, of the breaking of the relationship with Russia financially. I don't see that happening. The second and maybe bigger problem is I, Russia probably has cyber capabilities to go after financial institutions, not just on Wall Street, potentially, and, and the Chinese government probably has those capabilities also, but they could go after independent financial institutions or global financial institutions uh, like SWIFT. Um, so if they get boxed, and they, they kind of alluded to this threat, you know, they basically said, uh, a Russian um, uh, message said, uh, if we're part of SWIFT, we would never want to take it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> mafiosa, that's a classic, that's a classic Stalin, Cold War, mafiosa, you know, subtle threat to the SWIFT program um, if they get taken out. So there's a lot of pressure on not, you know, going to, going to the, uh, you know, going to, to the maximum uh, penalty, which really would be the SWIFT. But then the total sum of it then, if the SWIFT is not being uh, uh, acted on upon, uh, other other um, sanctions are are in place, some new one will be in place soon. But do you think the total sum of it is going to force Russia, Putin to uh, end the, the, the conflict now? Or is going to be able to weather like he did in 2014, the, the new sanctions, uh, at least for a while, and uh, given what we know already about what's going on at this point, and the planned sanction that the United States is planning, as well with our, our European allies. Here's, here's the mistake that the West makes consistently. And that the mistake is that they assume everybody else in the world, their top priority is to maintain themselves in a Western economic system to benefit from liberalism, you know, generally. That's the liberal theory in and of itself. The problem is, and this goes back through back to the Treaty of Westphalia, you know, the, the founding of the modern state system. There, right. are, there, are, there are many countries that will accept losses for the for the benefit of strategic gains as they see them. So something like making sure Ukraine, you know, never becomes kind of a Western leaning uh, territory, you know, they, they see Ukraine as kind of their Monroe Doctrine, you know, territory, and they're willing to take a lot of financial pain um, in order to protect strategics, which you, you can't, it's not an apples to apples, you know, financial markets, you know, versus strategic territory, but they, they're calculating strategic territory as being more valuable than the bottom line of, you know, of, of hard currency coming in on any, any given year. So if they could weather, you know, if they could survive the financial hurt, um, it's going to be, they, they will not see it as a net loss if they could maintain strategic buffer territory, which they see as much more important in the long run. That's right. I want to you know, touch on this, this separate issue, and that is, you know, there are many countries, and there are countries that belong to NATO, 30 of them. Probably, probably Putin will not dare to touch any of this country because by the, the, the rules of the alliance is that one country is being attacked, they have obligation to come to its aid and that he does not want to have war with, with NATO countries, which would include the United States, obviously. But there are many countries, say, take the Ukraine, take, uh, take Georgia, uh, whereby they do not belong to NATO. 
they are, do not have any kind of security alliances anywhere. And they're basically, they're vulnerable. And so what would this stop? Now, what happened here, the United States, the European community decided not to interfere militarily to stop, to stop Poland. And so what happened here, so he's taken, he took the risk of perhaps calculating that the United States is not going to get involved militarily in, the, in this case. So what happened to these countries who have no uh, security guarantees? Now you have, uh, other than by alliances or by, by treaties, perhaps you have uh, other countries, for example, Israel, Japan, South Korea, and all of that, they have commitment from the United States to be pro Taiwan, to be protected. But many other countries, some in, in, in uh, you know, not far from, from uh, Russia, take Georgia, take other, uh, they don't have that kind of guarantee from anybody. What will stop Putin now from doing exactly the same thing that he's done in, in, uh, in, in the Ukraine, uh, given this kind of setup, and where the United Nations, for that matter, failed miserably in taking the kind of step necessary because well, we can talk about that uh, in a moment if we, if we have the time. Yeah, no, I mean, look, let's face it, Alon. I mean, world politics has been a messy business for centuries. You know, I mean, the great game of the 19th century, you know, geopolitics, Metternich, you know, through Bismarck, uh, through Churchill. I mean, people have been making land deals uh, for buffer territory um, and sacrificing values and human rights you know, for the sake of realpolitik. I mean, that's just the nature of, of world politics. It's yeah. very, I mean, if we can't, if we can't, I mean, the, the best we can do, obviously, is protect these NATO countries. But I'm even a little concerned about them because, and I'm not saying this will happen overnight, but you take the Baltic states, for example, that are now part of NATO, there are over 1 million ethnic Russians in those Baltic states. Oh, um, Right. And I'm not, I don't think Putin would never do anything like he just did to Ukraine there, but you can absolutely see him engaging in that kind of, you know, counterintelligence, subterfuge, you know, trying to foment, you know, uh, violations, human rights violations against Russians in the Baltic states and claiming that, you know, these Baltic states are violating, you know, Russian human rights. You could, this is his playbook now, Alon. I, I'm, I'm actually a little bit more worried about, you know, the Moldovas and the, you know, and the Baltic states. Uh, that have Russian populations that he will now see as his chessboard, you know, for the next couple moves. That is, if what we said at the beginning of our discussion, if if things do get back to normal with Ukraine, you know, they make some, you know, they sign an agreement never to join NATO, and then you know they have a friendly Russian government now, let's say in Kiev, um, and everybody forgets about it, and the Europeans are so dependent on oil and gas from Russia that they start getting those imports again, and then. Five, eight years from now, he starts making these exact same moves into, as you said, into other territory. That's absolutely what they have in mind. I mean, he, he sees greater Russia as his, you know, that's his, um, uh, his, his claim to historic fame is going to be to be, you know, uh, a male Catherine the Great, you know. But where, where would he go from here? What other countries? Where, what he aiming for? I mean, if he, he can sabotage some of the, the, Member, you know, NATO, NATO member state in various ways uh, undermine their independence and work on one another. But he is not going to use military against any of these countries and for, for good reason. Uh, so, so where is he going to create that, uh, restore some element of the Russian empire? Uh, where does, what, what countries, where would he be aiming at at this point? Yeah, he'd be aiming at, you know, so-called greater Russia. Now, obviously, a bunch of them are in the European Union and a bunch of them are in NATO now. Uh, but Georgia, um, he's, at, he's actually supporting Serb nationalism again down in the Balkans, you know, seeing again a, a, another Slavic bridge from the Russian Empire down into the Balkans. Uh, they already have Crimea and the waterways, you know, down into the strategic waterways, you know, with the naval fleets off Crimea now. So he's envisioning um, rebuilding that kind of southeastern uh, European empire as much as he can. Um, uh, you know, again, it, it's it's a funny thing, Alon, you know, the movement of the NATO alliance, you know, uh, uh, east uh, toward the border of borders of Russia, uh, on the one hand, has inspired this Russian nationalism that people like George Kennan, you know, and Henry Kissinger and people like that predicted uh, would happen back in the 1990s. 
Um, on the other hand, it's not a terrible thing that a lot of these giant portions of important populations and you know civilizations that now exist in Central and Eastern Europe are under the protection of the European Union and NATO. Um, so you know uh, maybe in the future we'll just see you know geopolitics coming back in a big way in East Asia with China, you know in uh, in Eastern and Central uh, in Eastern Europe with with Russia re exerting itself, and we'll end up with you know what people try to avoid. Franklin Roosevelt tried to avoid in his negotiations with Stalin and Churchill, which were going to be these spheres of influence um, that were going to, that on the one hand, you know, make great powers feel more secure, but on the other hand, also create conflict globally because you end up with different spheres with different interests, but having a lot of power. So I think that's what Putin has in mind is extending the extending down to southeastern Europe. He's again, he's doing Serbian stuff again, um, which is telling us something. So he gets Ukraine. He has he gets the rest of of uh, Ukraine. He has all the way down to Crimea with a land bridge down there. He has the waterways and navies that go down into southeastern uh, um, uh, Europe. Uh, you know, out, navels that can go out into the Mediterranean, uh, where he has you know a naval base in uh, off Syria. Um, you know, I think this is what he has in mind in the short medium term. Yeah, but I mean, nevertheless, uh, it's, it's not hardly still comparable to what the United States uh, has in terms of forces around the Middle East and, and, and Asia and other, other places. So I, I, I fully agree with you. I mean, he is ambitious. He wants to restore elements of this so-called Soviet Union at this point. Uh, but from, from my seat, I don't, do you feel that the European community, the United States basically is going to continue to employ sort of this measures that are not going to really stop him cold. Uh, because if this is his ambition, and I, I agree with you, what steps, what significant steps other than sanctions that the United States and European can take in order to, to, to uh, stop him uh, from uh, trying to realize his uh, grandiose ambition? You know, this is where politics comes in, and I understand it. You know, politics is part of democracies, including in the United States. Um, and, and there's a lot of people, particularly, you know, maybe 40% of the Democratic Party doesn't want to hear this right now. But the United States is going to have to become a major energy producer. Australia is doing, you know, natural gas, you know. Um, uh, the North uh, Atlantic has much more resources than a lot of the Northern European countries are willing to take out of the ground due to due to politics. Russian, you know, a lot of, if we talk about power, China has multivariate sources of power. I mean, they're becoming an economic uh, behemoth. Right. I'm, not, I'm not positive they're going to, you know, uh, you know, dominate the United States economically in the next, you know, 20, 30 years. That I think the jury is still out a little bit. But uh, Russia is very unidimensional. I mean, unless they start diversifying their economy, they're oil and gas. That's you know, it. Right. So we have to, if we, the things that you and I were just discussing, which is the, me, the, the short to medium term, the next, you know, three to eight years or 10 years of what Putin and, and his successors might have in mind, which is broadening, you know, uh, Mother Russia, you know, getting the near abroad back under control from Moscow. Um, if, if the West and the world it's in general pushes back on the advantages that Putin has on oil and gas, he's going to be very limited in terms of his financial resources to build the kind of militaries and the navies that we're going to, are going to be able to do that sort of thing. So unfortunately, I know everybody is wishing for the green future and they wish that it was here right now, but it's still an oil and gas dependent um, you know, geostrategic environment in world politics. And we have to keep that, and that's going to be true for the next you know, two or three generations. So we have to keep that in mind. We can't sort of give away the store. You know, Alon, we did the same thing with the Middle East, you know, try to wean off the, the dependency on the Middle East and eventually the United States, you know, and Obama played a big role in that too. I mean, he was part of the fracking uh, revolution. He recognized the importance of, of particularly natural gas as a bridge fuel for the next couple of decades. Um, we have to do the same thing with Russia that we have done with Middle Eastern countries that we have been able to wean ourselves off dependency because if we stay dependent on Russia as you know the world's gas station, um, they're going to have a lot more outsized power than they really ought to. But don't you think? I mean, I, I think that perhaps what happened now might very well be the catalyst just for that. That is what he's done awakened the, the European community as the time has come to become energy independent from Russia for that matter. And, and certainly 
they have the technology, they have the means by which to produce new sources. And I agree with you. I mean, some say, for example, if we take an inch, inch from, from the seas, you can extract energy from water for a hundred years from one single inch of water. <laughs> so, I mean, there are all kinds of sources still extremely expensive at this juncture to, 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 do, to do that, but there are certainly opportunities. Some say, some say that Putin actually miscalculated and that no matter what success he might enjoy at this juncture, even if he eventually control of the Ukraine and install a puppet government there that's going to listen to him like the one it was before Zelensky came to power, that, that he made a terrible mistake and that may very well be the end uh, of uh, the beginning of the end of uh, Putin era. Do you buy into that argument? Um, as um, Yogi Berra said, it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. Um, but uh, Maybe. I mean, if it's an Af if it turned, I, I don't, I just don't see it turning into a debacle the way that the Afghan, you know, the Afghanistan invasion in 1979 turned into a debacle. Um, he's, he's done these sorts of things before, as you've, as you've mentioned, he's installed puppet regimes in parts of Georgia and in Ukraine and things. Um, and, and I very much caution whenever the West is determining what the costs are going to be on someone else, it, the West doesn't do a very good job at looking at the world through the eyes of others, you know, um, in twenty on the in twenty fourteen, do you remember uh, Susan Rice was one of the yeah I think she was the national security advisor uh, yes. for, uh, at the time for Obama, and Putin was lining up armies on the outskirts of Crimea, and somebody asked her, you know, do you think that Putin is going to you know be foolish enough uh, to actually carry out this invasion of Crimea? And I'm I'm paraphrasing, but her answer was no, he's not going to do it. And the reporter said, well, why not? And she said, because it's against his interest. Oh, well, that's, that's obviously wasn't the case. <laughs> it's not, but, that, but the problem is that was the interest as Susan Rice and the Obama administration viewed it. They, and Madeleine Albright just wrote a piece in the New York Times the other day. It's a very, and so did Richard Haas. I mean, these are all, you know, I think I have a lot of respect for all these, all these people. Um, but their view tends to be that the, the greatest goal of anyone in the world is to become, you know, Fetted at Davos, you know, and or become part of the G8 again, you know, that they all that they really want is to become, you know, uh, uh, enriched members of the of the Western, you know, uh, liberal uh, capitalist club. Um, they're not looking at interests that way. So when they when people are saying things like this is going to be the ultimate demise of Putin, I just think that's a lot of wishful thinking. Um, it might. I mean, it very much might, because you know, from Napoleon to, to to Hitler. I mean, people have made some some hugely strategic uh, mistakes, and by the way, both of them had to do with invasions of Russia. <laughs> you know, yeah. and Hitler. Maybe. You know, so yeah. yeah. So there's no. I mean, if Napoleon can make a mistake with Russia, and then Hitler makes a mistake with Russia, it's not beyond the pale that someone like Putin, who I don't think has the mind of a Napoleon that Putin could easily miscalculate and end up imploding himself. But I don't think he's going to do, I think Ukraine is not that risky to him. Um, I just don't think, it's not like he's going into Moldova or he's, you know, he's toying around with the Baltic states, which would be possibly a suicide mission for him. Um, I think he's, he's dipping some toes in the water. He's going to expand. He's going to have a, a, the, the largest, you know, one of the largest countries uh, uh, in Europe under his control again, uh, uh, Ukraine potentially. And if he could, if he pulls that off again with the dependence that the Europeans have on oil and gas and their strong desire to get back to normal and their unwillingness to do severe sanctions like through SWIFT, I, I see him as calculating, you know, as a gambler, I see him as calculating it's, it's a bet that he thinks is going to pay off. And, and with all due respect, I just don't think that Joe Biden, I mean, I have a lot of respect for him. I worked on the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate when he was the chairman for a couple of years. Um, but I just don't think that this administration is going to be thinking, you know, like a Churchill or a Roosevelt, you know, about uh, doing an end run around the, the Putin strategy. I just think, you know, we're going to sort of try to figure out a way to punish him, say that the West won some kind of a victory by, by halting him and, and you know, harming his economy. And maybe, like you said before, creating some opposition within the Russian, um, not that it's a, a democracy, but creating some opposition uh, within Russia itself. You know, I mean, I think the West would, would consider that to be like a, a status quo that they could live with for a while. But um, I don't think it would deter Putin in the future. And I don't think it would deter Xi Jinping potentially uh, with designs that he might have, you know, 
uh, uh, in, in other parts of the world. Yeah, just, uh, you know, yeah, just that uh, night, night before, I was watching the deliberation of the Security Council, which I don't know if you had an opportunity to see it, um, uh, the debating, of course, before the invasion started. And you heard some, some of the remarkable, some of the statements I made, especially, I was extremely impressed by the Ireland ambassador to the United Nations Security Council. She gave very moving, very special. Uh, but then, as it turned out, of course, fate has it, the, uh, the ambassador of, of uh, Russia happened to be the president of the council this particular month. And everybody was making this statement. And while he was talking, trying to explain, trying to suggest that we are just sending peace, peacekeeping forces to prevent this genocide that has been committed by the uh, Ukrainian forces, and that's what doing. While he was talking, Putin uh, made a declare then he was giving a speech that he ordered the military to, to go into to, to the Ukraine. The, the, to me, and uh, as a result, you know, this instigated my head to write something about the United Nations, how, how irrelevant it has become, especially the Security Council. Uh, and, and here you have a, a classic incident where there is a war about to happen. They are sitting in the Security Council, which was supposed to do just that, maintain peace and security, when in fact, as they are speaking, an invasion takes place. Well, how, how do we, my feeling is that something needs to be done with that as far as the United Nations is concerned, if there's no reform to reflect the changing global demographics representation in the Security Council, uh, well, the, the United Nations, in my view, has outlived its usefulness already. What's your take on that? I, I agree with you. And, and the irony is the Security Council was a reform over the League of Nations because the League of Nations didn't take into account great power interests specifically. So the Security Council is better than the League of Nations. The problem is during the Cold War, when it was Russia and when it was the Soviet Union and the United States, nothing happened on the Security Council because they just stalemated themselves. And now we're entering a new, as you pointed out perfectly, Elon, we're entering kind of a new age of geopolitical competition and these great powers, not least of all Russia and China, both with these permanent seats since 1945, um, they have an ability to stymie anything, uh, all the values and all the principles and all the institutions that you described at the beginning of our conversation, um, you know, the kind of the Western uh, liberal uh, uh, model of, you know, better, you know, governance in the world. But they, you know, if they want to do a rear guard attack against Western liberalism and Western liberal institutions and values, they, they can ironically do it from the perch of the United Nations Security Council, they will have two fifths <laughs> of, of the seats uh, yeah. in order to do that. Now, real quick thing on that. Um, you know, you remember back the Georgia uh, uh, intervention, that was 2007, 2008. Um, and that was right when the 2008 election was happening. And remember, uh, John McCain was running against uh, Barack Obama. That's right. So McCain, you know, McCain might be a little bit more of a gung-ho, you know, uh, Wilsonian internationalist uh, on the military side than I might be. But, you know, uh, uh, Obama, who was just sort of getting his chops on, you know, uh, on this, on these things, he was asked during the campaign, you know, what, what will you do to respond to uh, Russia's incursions, you know, into, uh, uh, you know, into Georgia? And, and uh, Obama's response was, I will immediately call for an emergency session of the United Nations Security Council. <laughs> and, and that was one opening, you know, that was one, and he couldn't, he couldn't play geopolitics with John McCain, obviously. So that was one opening for John McCain where he then came out with his idea. I'm not saying I totally agree with him, but it's, it's something that you were just saying, you know, what are the alternatives? McCain said, we have to move beyond the Security Council and have a coalition of democracies, he said. We need a world. It's almost like what Immanuel Kant, you know, was calling for. Um, uh, you know, a, a coalition of republics and democracies that are kind of just in the same club, no matter what. And we don't need an institution like the United Nations that, let's face it, Western liberal values created the UN. But now, if they're going to be, you know, obstructors on the UN system, you know, 
we democracies can't be suckers and sit around and just wait for the UN, you know, system to to give something a green light. So McCain came out with a more aggressive, you know, line on what the United States should be doing in the in the Russian near abroad. Now, of course, the financial collapse, you know, became uh, the big issue for the two thousand eight. Uh, campaign, but that was a little moment, a little window into how d Democrats think, you know, how, and these are a lot of those same Obama people are now in the Biden administration. I mean, they still, they're still strongly in favor of, of leaning heavily on institutions, and I don't particularly have a problem with it, but we're going to have to lean a lot more heavily on NATO and institutions that, you know, support us um, than global institutions where there might be veto powers uh, that are, you know, really un, un, unsatisfactory. But do you feel, for example, if we were to uh, reform the United Nations and reform the Security Council, obviously this is a tall order because to reform some of these member states, for example, the veto holding power, are not going to give up their power, you know, only, only to reform the United Nations. But, but given the fact that the United Nations, for all intended purposes, other than some agencies, are still working, doing a good job, the Security Council became pretty much uh, irrelevant. That as long as you can uh, exercise the veto power anytime you want. And, and so that reform, in my view, are going to be necessary, however difficult and complicated that might be. That is, can we, in fact, abandon the United Nations altogether and rely on regional uh, alliances like NATO, like, like other? Or should we think in terms of we have now international organization, it was created to maintain peace and and security around the world uh, that should remain indispensable, where all the all the, all the countries around the world can get still together and can look at the how can this globe can be more stable and more secure. And to that end, there's some kind of we need to, to to undertake some important reform by not necessarily usurp the veto power from say Russia or China. In fact, they can retain that, but but make it a little bit more increase, for example, the number of the Security Council members, making sure, in my view, that only two, two nations would have to exercise veto power in order to, to, make, it, to, to make it happen. Allow, for example, the, the Security, the General Assembly, they can override, for example, a veto power with two, two, two third majority. Think of this nature where they become the EU, the United Nations becomes more a, a, an organization that can, in fact, uh, exercise and make sure that there is security and that there is peace uh, on, on, you know, around the globe. What do you think of that? I think it's been thought about, it's been, you know, toyed with, experimented with. Um, the problem, and, and the General Assembly, you know, as you mentioned during the Cold War, they had the uniting for peace resolutions and things where they would pass by two thirds in the General Assembly and then they would claim that was, you know, the law beyond the Security Council. But then you don't get, if you don't get the great powers to have buy in on that stuff, um, then nothing ever happens. You know, uh, expanding. You know, I, I would I would say I'm as I'm as optimistic of reform in the UN Security Council as I would be in the United States for reforming the Electoral College. <laughs> you know, that there are just there are just too many powerful actors that would never allow um, those kinds of changes. And even if you just wanted to add some members, I mean, the the, the member that Obama was uh, was throwing around for a while, you know, um, was India. Um, and that just got China completely hysterical, you know. Uh, so anytime, you know, whenever you mention one country to come in, and then, it, and then if, you know, if the United States gets one, let's say U.S. gets India, then, then China wants Pakistan, um, you know, you just start getting this kind of chess and checker game, uh, and you'll just have almost the exact same voting blocks, just they'll be bigger, you know. Um, so it's, it's a little bit of a tough nut, but we, you know, the, my opinion, um, there's not a world government. You know, the UN does some good things. Uh, great powers uh, are still the ones that, that determine, you know, international events. Institutions play important roles. And I think the best thing that the United States and other, you know, liberal democracies can do when the Security Council is in rough shape like this is do the best we can to abide by the principles of the United Nations. And if we have to engage in certain behaviors outside the realm of the UN, at, you know, try to marry it up to UN principles as much as possible. 
I'd say that was done somewhat imperfectly in the 1990s. You remember um, uh, the, the Bosnian Civil War uh, and then the Kosovo War. Um, both of those were vetoed in the UN Security Council uh, by Russia and China. Um, so the United States and the Allies uh, made it into a NATO operation. Um, and they tried to abide the same principles um, uh, of the UN. Uh, I mean, let's face it, the Atlantic Charter between Roosevelt and Churchill was the foundations of the United Nations. You know, so the US and the British would be saying things like, you know, we're abiding by the Atlantic Charter, which founded the UN in order to protect Bosnian Muslims or whatever the case might be. Um, but again, we fall into the same trap of that being very westernized and also paralleling Western interests against what Russia would see as its interests in its near abroad and the, you know, the, uh, uh, the Slavic uh, uh, nationalities that are around you know, uh, Eastern and Southeastern Europe. So that was not a great moment in there. In Russia and China you know, don't trust the UN uh, since the 90s, since those interventions by NATO that went around the Security Council and then with the responsibility to protect doctrine uh, where they agreed for the Libya intervention to be based on these new principles of humanitarian intervention. And then that became a regime change operation that knocked out uh, Gaddafi. At that moment, Russia and China, uh, and that was, you know, what was that back in uh, 20, 2011? Um, Russia and China completely lost trust in, in their Western partners on the UN Security Council. Um, and they basically made a, a pact, I don't know how formal it was, that they were going to now be, you know, uh, BFFs. Right. On, uh, on the Security Council to be fighting against the, as they see it, the encroachment of Western liberal ideology against their interests and their political ideologies. So well, then, yeah, yeah. And then, nevertheless, like you mentioned, Obama at the time uh, is I'll go to the Security Council, and as recently as day before yesterday, Zelensky called for an emergency session, as if the United Security Council is actually effective, is going to do something about it. And in my view, it's, come, it's become nothing more than a debating society or a, 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 where everybody can make their case, but nobody in fact, is paying any attention to it. You know, uh, I, I want to ask you just uh, one final thought if you have, because uh, it would be great to hear you. Oh, just a final thought. Um, yeah, my final thought in the world right now, and we're seeing it on the TV screens, it's, I think it's pretty ironic that and I, I don't disagree with the Biden administration, you know, that we, the, the United States and the West needs to, needs to push back against anti-democratic forces around the world and those that are opposed uh, to the global liberal principles. I think, the, I think global Western liberalism can get preachy and can get very, you know, intrusive around the world. And, and I think the West and, and the liberal West has to do a better job of like self, you know, awareness on that not everybody wants the Western, you know, uh, footprint all around them. And that goes for, you know, uh, uh, global jihadi movements around the world also that are equally opposed, you know, to sort of Western liberalism and capitalism. So we're living in this moment where there's these, this pushback against Western liberal values. Um, and I think, you know, Biden had a, a good summit for democracy. I thought it went pretty well. He did it for a week, I guess, a couple of months ago. Um, yeah. But think about what think about what the world looks like now. Just a couple months after that summit of democracy, we have China exerting itself even more. Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party giving even more pronouncements about the death and demise of Western liberalism and how China is going to replace it. We have Putin, who's now clearly energized and emboldened to directly go against the idea of democratization and Western liberalization near anywhere near his borders that he has any control over. And we're going to have, and unfortunately, we didn't get into this today, but maybe our next podcast, uh, they're going to, the Biden administration is going to do a big new nuclear deal with the Iranians, uh, even though they've made no adjustments to their political ideology and their ambitions across the greater, you know, the broader Persian Gulf and Middle East. Um, and they're pushing back against democracies and, you know, things like that. So we're going to have three movements in the, in the world from East Asia, from Russia, and from uh, Persian Gulf, Middle East, that are all countries that are now emboldened, ironically, as we in the West and the United States try to create this pushback in favor of, of liberal democracy. I think it's, we're in for an interesting, you know, half a generation or so coming up, I think. But, but do you think that they, they, they think that perhaps that Biden is not up to the task? Do they have that, do you feel that some of these countries feel, well, 
you know, is weak, uh, is perceived to be weak, and maybe we should take advantage. Do you think that was part of Putin's calculation? I think it was absolutely part of Putin's calculation. I wrote about this in August and September when the Afghan debacle happened. Um, and, you know, this was, and it's, it's interesting, Alon, you know, people often don't recognize the connection between foreign policy and American politics. And I was teaching my American foreign policy course at Columbia, you know, when, when Afghanistan collapsed and, and all the rest of it. And people were saying, how is this going to impact the Democratic Party? And I say, this is going to be devastating for the Biden administration. And they said, why? Most people don't, they can't even, they don't even know what Afghanistan is. They, you know, they don't care about foreign policy. I said, it's not about that. It was about their sense of competency of right. their leadership. And yeah. If they see in and he by the way he spent you know years uh, in doing foreign policy stuff he was the chairman of the foreign relations committee you know he was, he was Obama's you know vice president doing a lot of foreign policy stuff you know the idea you only get one chance to make a first impression and they so mishandled Afghanistan for horribly horribly oh, that you know, was a terrible terrible thing and that yeah. and that you know by the way Alon people don't even realize that it was a shock to NATO. I mean, the, the withdrawal that they were doing, they started doing unilaterally without even informing the British. Um, so I think Putin, and he might've been wrong about this, and this gets back to an early point from you, Putin saw how outraged NATO countries were about the way the Biden administration mishandled that withdrawal. And they, they, he, was, he was more dismissive of NATO than even Trump was in some cases, you know, with that, uh, with that Afghan withdrawal. So I think that Putin sensed a division in NATO. I think Putin is smart enough to recognize that if he invaded Ukraine, it was probably gonna create some unity uh, for NATO again. I mean, no matter who was president of the United States, but I think he still does view uh, Biden and Harris, you know, as uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. You know, somebody did say that uh, uh, Putin made America great again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, I can leave, leave you with an Alexander Hamilton quote. You know, please. yeah, Hamilton back in the 18th century, he was referring to this domestic international connection, and this is when the U.S. was a, a weak power. You know, he said, "No government, meaning no Amer no American government, no mm. government could give us tranquility and happiness at home." which does not possess sufficient strength and ability to make us respectable abroad. Exactly. No, I fully, fully agree with that. But, you know, I'm more than welcome. Any other opportunity, we can discuss uh, some other subjects uh, because your, your expertise in foreign policy, my, my, my uh, uh, quote-unquote expertise in international as a conflict resolution, and perhaps we can deal with some other conflict uh, that has been uh, raging specifically in the Middle East. So again, I want to thank you so much. Count me in. Happy to do so. This was this was terrific. I really appreciate it. Oh, they're very welcome. It's, the pleasure is mine. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page. And stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.